Good afternoon. Well, Good Friday is all about answering the how question. How are we to be in a relationship with God? Now, that's one of the universal questions in life, right? A question that all sorts of religions ponder. If there is a God, how am I to be in a right relationship with him? Because Every world religion will say that there is a gap between humanity and the divine, a gap which somehow must be bridged and crossed. And most religions say that life is all about trying extremely hard to live up to a certain standard so that you can cross that gap, that if you try hard enough, uh, you'll end your life with a positive verdict. You'll, you'll, you'll pass the test. You'll, you'll meet God. You'll get to heaven. You'll attain nirvana, whatever that reward is. Every other religion says, if you try hard enough, you'll get the verdict and you'll get in. But Christianity is different. It's not about what you do, which bridges the gap. It's what's been done on our behalf. Particularly, it's about what God has done for us on Good Friday. That's what we're going to think about this afternoon. Now, this might seem a little bit strange. We're not going to park in one of the gospel accounts as we examine Jesus' death on our behalf. Instead, we're going to go back 800 years and look at what the prophet Isaiah said about this figure, the Messiah. Why? Well, to be honest, I think Isaiah, this particular passage in 52 and 53, is the best passage in the entire Bible for understanding what the cross is all about, how God bridges that gap between he and us. Why is it the best? Well, it's because the New Testament writers constantly allude to it. Their understanding of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is deeply informed by this passage. Not only that, but Jesus' own understanding of his life and death and resurrection is deeply informed by this passage. He would have thought about it continually. So our three points, I tend to think in threes, our three points as we think about the how question, this might sound somewhat clinical, is the method, sorry, the manner, the method, and the result. We're going to think about the manner and the method and the result of the how question. So what about the manner Well, Isaiah's prophecies took place over a long period of time. But for much of his prophecies, they were aimed at people who were going to be sent into exile. They were going to be conquered, taken away from their land, and go through all sorts of terrible anguish and suffering. But one day, one day, Isaiah says, God will bring them home. He will return them to their lands. They uh, They will have security in their home again. That was their immediate future. But also, Isaiah was prophesying something far bigger in the distant future. Uh, We see all the way through the book of Isaiah repeated this prophecy of a mysterious figure, a Messiah-type figure who will bring everlasting salvation to God's people, who will give them an eternal home that will never be taken away from them. And Isaiah gives all these grand and spectacular descriptions of this Messiah figure, that he will be a wonderful counsellor, mighty God, king of kings, prince of peace, that he will bring blessing to the entire world, that his rule of justice will never end. 
And you see at the section that was read just earlier, this glorious figure in chapter 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But then after this rather grand description, something quite appalling happens. Instead of being a figure of glory and of praise and of adulation, for the rest of the passage you get uh, the picture of this king who is absolutely humiliated. This Messiah, instead of bringing an end to violence, is the victim of violence. Instead of being the object of praise, is the object of scorn. Instead of bringing an end to justice, is the victim of injustice. I wonder if you could look at the descriptions of him. Right from, right from the very beginning of his life, we have in 53 verse 2, he grows up like a shoot out of dry ground. Uh, in other words, his background isn't that impressive. It doesn't have many credentials. There's, there's no beauty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And then verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This Messiah isn't very impressive. In fact, he's less than impressive. He's very ordinary. Now think of Jesus for a moment. Born in humble circumstances, the, the son of a teenage virgin mother. Then he's born in a town that's not very well known and grows up in a town that's even less well known. And we know pretty much nothing about his childhood. In adult life, he writes no books, um, accumulates few possessions, um, doesn't lead an army, wins no elections. He says of himself, birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but I have nowhere to lay my head. He is a guy who starts off life with nothing and he ends life with nothing. Look back at uh, chapter, 40, chapter 52, verse 14. What do people think of him? It says, there were many who were appalled. Now, this word appalled is actually a lot stronger than we get the apprehension of it here. It means to be repulsed, so, so nauseated by something that it makes you physically sick, you want to vomit. What were they appalled at? Verse 14, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form was marred beyond human likeness. They felt physically sick because this person was so beaten, so disfigured that he hardly looked human anymore. People looked at him in his life and found him unimpressive and they looked at him in his death and found him appalling. So here is a servant of the Lord, the mighty one, the, the king, God's chosen one. And he goes from triumph to defeat, from honour to dishonour. He's absolutely ordinary. Now think about your reaction to this figure. Over and over again, we're, we're told that he is the object of score, not just back then, but now. People are appalled. They, they despise and reject him. Why? Well, I think it's two things. We don't like the ordinary and we don't think that God can work through the ordinary. We don't like the ordinary. I mean, think about how you sell yourself to people. When you get to know someone, uh, how do you present yourself to that person? 
Um, you want to put on the best picture of yourself. You can, kind of like a shop front. Um, you put forward your best credentials, your education, your experience, your qualifications, your future prospects, um, all sorts of things. But Jesus had none of these. People couldn't see past how ordinary he was. That's what Isaiah has been saying all along. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, and we esteemed him not. Uh, that word esteemed is a bit of an accounting word. It, it, it means to value um, something. We give value th- to things, how much we uh, assign goodness to them. And here is Isaiah giving a diagnosis of the human condition. We value Jesus as nothing. To see the Messiah and find no beauty in him is to reveal the fickleness of our emotions. Um, to agree with those who despise and reject him is to expose how misguided we are. And to look at him and appraise him as worthless condemns our minds as being corrupted. Isaiah is saying the very, the very core of our human nature is flawed. Why? Because at every point we find God's servant disdainful, ordinary unattractive, unappealing, unimpressive. We don't like the ordinary. But not only that, we don't think God works through the ordinary. Many people turn away from God because they misunderstand how God works through us. We're expecting the beautiful and the spectacular and the impressive and powerful, but instead we get a servant. We don't think God works through the ordinary. Okay, that's the manner of the how. What about the method? Well, God works for the salvation of his people through the removal of their sins. And here we see two aspects of it. In verses 4 to 9, there are two things that I want you to notice what the servant does. His suffering is vicarious and it's voluntary. Vicarious and voluntary. Vicarious means he acts as a substitute. Now, the Bible talks a lot about... um, Sacrifices In the Old Testament, we well know that God's people had to offer sacrifices, a goat, a bull, some animal. The sin, when, um, when this animal is presented before the temple, the sins would symbolically transfer from that person onto the animal and that animal would be killed. And even though killing an animal wouldn't take away sins, it was a reminder that sin mattered. It came at a cost. The animal acted as a substitute for that person. However, nowhere in the scriptures is a human sacrifice allowed. It was expressly forbidden. And yet, for some reason, in this passage that we're reading from Isaiah, there is a human offering. The servant's life is being offered up as a guilt offering. Ten times in this passage, we're told that Jesus took upon himself that which should be ours. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Uh, He was pierced for our transgressions. That word pierced literally means that he was pierced from the front through his body out the back. That word represents the most painful and excruciating forms of death. And Jesus did on our behalf. Now, sometimes you might think, you know, why did Jesus have to go through all this? Can't Can't God just forgive sins? 
It's not uncommon to, for people to think, well, it's God. You know, God's, God's job is to forgive sins. That's who he is. It's in his resume. He just has to forgive sins. But think about what it costs to forgive. Because forgiveness always involves a cost. When a wrong is committed, for restoration to happen between two people in a relationship, a cost has to be borne by someone. All right, assume for a moment I've lost my phone and I borrow your, your iPhone. You've spent a long time trying to save for it to five and you're all excited. Um, and you're very generous and you lend it to me for a little while to make a few phone calls. I'm absent-minded. I've either lost, lost it or broken it or lent it to someone else, I don't know. But somehow, the cost for this phone must be, must be recompensed. Um, someone has to bear the cost if there's going to be, well, openness in the relationship again. By all measures, I should pay for the phone, okay, because it's my problem. But if you're very gracious, you might say, that's all right, Alex. Uh, don't worry about it, I'll pay for it. It means you've incurred the debt of the phone yourself. You absorb the cost. Now, forgiveness means absorbing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. It means absorbing the debt of the, your sin yourself. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, it's important to understand that we cannot bear the cost of our sins ourselves. We can't do it. As much as we might be capable of uh, wonderful acts of sacrifice and compassion and beauty, we cannot bear the burden of our own sin ourselves. Isaiah sums it up in verse 6. He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Um, I'm not sure if you know too much about the evolutionary history of sheep, but if sheep weren't domesticated a couple of thousand years ago, there's no way they'd still exist nowadays. Uh, the problem with sheep is, is that they um, possess no armour, uh, they can't run particularly fast, they don't have big teeth or claws with which to defend, to defend themselves. And their biggest problem is, is that they taste nice and everyone knows it, everyone wants a piece of them. To top it off, sheep are incredibly stupid. Uh, I've known, I've, I've had friends who are farmers and sheep have been known to follow each other off a cliff to their death. They're really easily led. Sheep have it all against them. Isaiah says, we're all like sheep. Our natural inclination is to turn away from God, not towards him, to put ourselves in charge of our own lives. But without God, like sheep, we're subject to all sorts of dangers. We're helpless. And because we keep turning away from God, we simply cannot absorb the cost of our own sins ourselves. That's why Isaiah says, we each, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus pays the cost for us. He pays the cost which we cannot bear ourselves. Uh, John Stott, in a book called The Cross of Christ, describes in one word the message of the entire Bible. He says it's all about substitution. Substitution. He says that sin is you and I substituting ourselves for God. Putting ourselves as the figure of authority in our lives where God should be. That's sin. 
But salvation is God substituting himself for us. God putting himself in the place where you and I should be. Now, if you remember just one thing from today, just remember that. One word, substitution. Sin is us putting ourselves in place of God and salvation is God putting himself in our place. Jesus, living the life that we should have lived but dying the death that we should have died. Substitution. So the removal of sin is vicarious, it's substitutionary. But it's also voluntary. And we see that from verses 7 to 9 where we see this mysterious servant willingly going to his execution. Verse 7, he's led in a procession like a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 8, we see his execution. He's cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9, his burial. The whole story of Jesus' ministry is a journey towards the cross. Over and over and over again in the Gospel accounts, he tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be betrayed and put on trial and crucified. I'm going to suffer. Over and over again, he says it. That's where he's going. He willingly goes there. Now, we're often moved by stories of a dramatic rescue, right? Particularly when someone willingly gives up their life on behalf of someone else. I remember in high school reading Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. I'm not sure if you've read it. Uh, The two main characters are Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, two men who look almost identical to each other and who also happen to be in love with the same woman. Lucie Manet. And Lucie chooses Charles and they get married and have a child. And uh, it's during the French Revolution and because Charles Darnay is aristocracy, he gets arrested, put on trial and imprisoned, sentenced to death. At the end of the story, um, Sidney visits Charles in prison and offers to exchange places with him. Now, Charles refuses, but Sidney has him drugged and smuggled and taken out of prison, and, and he and, and, and Lucy with their child escape, and they're able to live a, the long life together. But after all this is done, as Sidney is waiting that night in that prison cell, a young seamstress comes over to him and starts having a conversation with him, assuming he's Charles. But when she realises it's not him, her eyes widen up, and she asks... Are you dying for him? Yes, for his wife and and child also. Hush, don't tell anyone. And so this seamstress, emboldened by what Sydney is doing, confesses her fears and um, her hesitation and her absolute terror with what's going to face her that she's unable to face her death. And she asks if Sydney can be with her to the very end. And that's what happens. They go towards their death hand in hand and she finds the courage and the fortitude. She's composed, even comforted, as long as she keeps her eyes on him. Now, this seamstress was sinking under the weight of her ordeal. Her strength was giving out and she was encouraged and emboldened by this example of substitution, substitutionary sacrifice. How much more so for us when we consider the cross? You see, the gospel isn't just a moving fictional account involving somebody else. We're deeply involved with it. 
It's all about us. We're actually in it. Jesus came into our prison willingly, into the darkness, and despite our unwillingness to be rescued, he took our place. He took the judgment which should be ours. That seamstress was moved by a sacrifice that didn't even involve her. She was empowered to go through this trial. How much more so for us when we go through times of difficulty, knowing that Jesus gave himself freely and willingly for us? Now, what does this mean for you? What would have prompted Jesus to go to the cross voluntarily for you? You see, Jesus' death is the only truly voluntary death in all of history. Because Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay, you and I, even if we put ourselves in the place of somebody else, we would die one day anyway. But Jesus is the only person in all of history who never would have died because he perfectly obeyed God in every way. He was the only person who really, truly had a voluntary death. And why does he do it? What makes him go to his death for us when on that cross he could quite easily have gotten down? Well, the only thing that keeps him on that cross is his love for you. You see, the creator of the universe, the hands that flung stars into space, were nailed to that cross. They were bound there in love. His hands were bound there in love for you and I. So the cross shows the method, the removal of our sins, how it's done. But the cross also shows the magnitude of God's love for us. All right, so that's the manner and the method. What about, what about the result? Well, we see it's a great reversal. In the last stanza of this passage, we see that even though the servant is crushed, that in verse 10, God causes his life to be a guilt offering, after his sufferings, he'll see the light of life. In other words, he'll be risen from the dead. That's one of the great reversals, from humiliation to exaltation. But there's another. You keep reading on in verse 11. God says that by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That word justify is a technical term. It's, it's a legal declaration. It, in, the, in the Bible, it means that your sin is no longer counted against you. It's wiped clean. It's forgiven. We all used to be outsiders, outsiders because of our sin, outsiders in our, in our relationship with God, unable to stand in his presence. But we've been brought in. Centuries after Isaiah's prophecy, Acts chapter 8 records how an Ethiopian went to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. And as he returns from Jerusalem, he's going back to his own home country and he's sitting on the back of his carriage and he's reading this very passage from Isaiah. And you have to understand that this Ethiopian has gone to a great depth of difficulty to make this journey. Nowadays, the distance from Ethiopia to Jerusalem is long. It takes a long time. Back then, magnitude. Why did he go to the temple? Why would anyone want to travel that far to a temple, to some building, unless he had deep spiritual dissatisfaction in life? He was looking for his spiritual need to be filled. 
But having travelled all the way to the temple, this guy would have been driven back. He would have been turned around. Why? We're told that he's a eunuch. And in ancient times, in royal courts, it was common practice for the royal households to demand that those who served them would be eunuchs, castrated, unable to have children. And the law of Moses absolutely forbade anyone who had any sort of physical defects or mutilations to be allowed into the temple of God. Because this guy was castrated, he was unclean. He couldn't be led inside the temple. He was an outsider, unfit, cut off from God's people. He would have been turned away. And it would have been a long, miserable trip home. But here he is, reading this passage from Isaiah, when one of Jesus' followers, Philip, runs up to the carriage. And they read together from Isaiah about this servant. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And then the eunuch asks Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or somebody else? And then Philip began with this very passage from Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now imagine what it would have been for this guy to be turned away from God's house and have to go all the way back to his home, that long journey, simply because of his physical defections, of his impurities, of his, that he couldn't have descendants, that he was an outsider, cut off from God's people, unable to have your deeper spiritual need met, but then told about the one who was cut off from the land of the living on his behalf, told about this man, Jesus, that you can be brought into God's eternal house through him, you're now one of his children. Imagine how electrifying he would have felt as Philip is explaining to him what the prophet Isaiah said all those years ago. This great reversal. Now, this wonderful passage that we've been looking at very briefly this afternoon from Isaiah tells us about our most significant need and what God has done to meet our needs. It tells us that we're sinners in terrible need of forgiveness, in need to be brought in, but that we have been saved, that God has done something about our needs. We are sinners and yet saved at the same time. That's the great reversal. And it's the great reversal that continues throughout our lives. It's the great reversal that should be seen in how we view other people. Listen, how do we... How do we often view people as outsiders? How do we often treat people as outsiders? We categorise people based on all sorts of things, based on their achievements, their education, their, their looks, their intelligence, their personality. We categorise people in all sorts of ways and we put them on an imaginary pecking order in relation to us. But how does God treat us? Only when you see your need, what it costs God to forgive you the mercy that he has shown you through Christ, will you be able to deal with people with neither inferiority or superiority? Because they're a sinner, just like you are, and they're saved, as you are. That's the how. That's the how question 
answered in Easter. How God saves us through Christ. The message that echoes through throughout Scripture. And I want to ask you just very briefly, have you accepted this message? Some of you have. Others you here amongst you might not be so sure. Have you been transformed by this good news? If not, can I encourage you, make sure you do business with God. Recognise your need and come to Jesus with arms wide open, recognising that there is no one more worthy of your lives, your very selves, than him. All right, let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this old, old story. Thank you that it is deeply and wonderfully relevant for us still today. That the story of Jesus, his death on our behalf, meets our need both abundantly and completely. Lord, thank you that you sent Christ to die the death that we should have died to live the life that we should have lived. Sorry for the many ways in which we forsake you and turn away from you. And Lord, help us, guide us by your spirit, strengthen us and equip us so that we can live lives which give glory to him. And we ask these things for his sake. Amen.